be patient in an emergency is a terrible trial. Welcome back. This is our final episode of the Building Hope Podcast Season 1. And this is part two of that final episode, so if you missed part one, you might want to go back and listen to that one first. As always, with Building Hope, we're featuring environmentally visionary architectural projects to explore how good design can build hope in a world facing a climate emergency. We're your hosts. I'm Julie Gabrielli, a professor of architecture at the University of Maryland. And I'm Vincenzo Perla, a current graduate student at the University of Maryland. Our final episode for this season is Building Hope from Vision to Action. We wrapped up with a special session recorded live in the Architecture School Library with some of our guests and current students. Before we get back to it, we wanted to take a moment to respond to a question we got from a reader of our Substack newsletter. What are you building hope for? They asked a bunch of stuff. Hope that humankind isn't wiped off the face of the earth? Hope that we can continue to consume stuff, but with less impact on other species? Hope that we can occupy buildings that are more energy efficient? Does each project come with its own set of hopes implicit within the design criteria? And it's true, each of these projects did set out to do different things. Most, I would argue, from a similar mindset, and that is a mindset of repairing our relationships with the natural world and with each other. And that's my personal take as well. That is my hope. I do not hope that green design will enable us to live just as we do now, only with less negative impact, because that's not enough, and it just pushes the damage out into the future for other generations to solve. The focus now needs to be on repair at the very least, which will come from deep personal connections with the living world. And so I really like this question because it falls into that, like, here's a seemingly simple question that's actually difficult to answer. <laughs> right. um, and when I think about being hopeful that maybe we can continue to consume stuff, but with less impact on other species, I think that my idealist brain is like, no, we need to change the way that we consume things, but that's really hard. Um, and I think that realistically speaking, maybe there is a little bit of hope that these projects can build, that we can still continue to consume stuff, but with a little bit less of an impact on other species. Yeah. And, you know, that reminds me of another of the respondents to Building Green's question about Earth Day and the environment and talking to young people. And one of them said, we can do better. We are smarter than burning everything to generate steam to turn a turbine. And as a human with a brain, we should be doing better. We should be using our brains for something that matches our own complexity. Like this whole we can do better thing. I mm -hmm. love that. Mm -hmm. All right, Vincenza, I have a confession to make about being hopeful. And I have to admit that I felt so good at the thesis presentations of these seven projects and and others because answers and solutions to problems are my happy place <laughs> <laughs> solving problems is rewarding and it's yeah. a big part of what i love about architecture about being the expert in the room yeah it's like 
you figured out the puzzle. Here's a cookie. Good job, Julie. Right. It's like I put that last piece in that no one could find. Yeah. Ding. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to say, one of th- one of the things I realized is that these conversations that we've been having have opened up a far broader perspective for me, which is that questioning and not knowing are the skills that we most need for the work ahead, for the predicaments that we're in. This kind of goes back to what we were speaking about earlier, where architecture is becoming more climate and science-based and whatnot. And as architecture becomes, I think, more of a... dips its toes more into the science world, we need to get more comfortable with asking questions and not having the answer to them. Because it's a feat to just ask the question to know what the question is to begin with, right? Oh, that's so true. So true. Architecture is, I think of it as a legacy profession. It's very tradition bound in, in all the best ways. Um, we rely a lot on precedent. And in that sense, it's conservative in the true sense of that word. Sometimes to, to me, it seems there's a mismatch between our huge societal problems and the tools we have as architects. Um, which always reminds me of this quote from Audre Lorde, where she said, the master's tools cannot dismantle the master's house. And so for our seven guests, being not yet fully indoctrinated into that status quo and those traditions of how we've always done it and how architecture is practiced, I think that's their greatest asset. They have fresh eyes Mm -hmm. and a unique perspective. Yeah, like, Luckily, they have very limited preconceptions of what's going on. They're not yet super bogged down by, I hate to even say that, but they're they're starting these projects with like humility and enrolling people in a collaborative, creative effort instead of this is the way we've done it. This is the way we're going to keep doing it. So this is the way we address the problem. Yeah, and I'm the expert in the room, which is usually a nice ego trip. But Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> And so they're searching and asking and listening, and that gives me hope, even more so than their beautiful visionary projects. 100%. And so continuing this conversation from the town hall, we touched on these two questions. And that ties back to the original question, right? What are we building hope for? And I think what helps me practice hope is having really powerful, fierce conversations. Like at the town hall, when we spoke about being a part of a movement, or interdisciplinary work, from school to work. And so now that the season is coming to an end, I have a question for you, Julie. And that is, what was your favorite moment from this whole process, this whole interview? And Oh, man, that's like asking a parent which of their children is their favorite. <laughs> <laughs> my mom would have a very clear answer to that. Oh. <laughs> my, mom, my parents used to play this game where they would tell each of us that we were their favorite for all different reasons separately. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> Did that mess with you, though? <laughs> no, no, no. It was just fun. I mean, I know I'm their favorite. I'm their firstborn. Ah, there you go. <laughs> and I think your siblings might disagree, but whatever. Um, yeah, that's such a tough question. But I would say the first thing that popped in my head was um, Melanie talked about um, the example of her, I think it was her grandmother or maybe even an, a further back ancestor, but this the the idea of making something out of nothing Mm -hmm. Um, and it really reminded me of my own grandparents who were immigrants from Italy and they just they had such a good life um, but it was by no means easy 
um, but they knew how to live well. And I think that's that idea. And she was talking about quilts and cooking and different different art forms and cultural forms um, in her family. And it really demonstrates the power of a creative engagement with the world. And, and also this whole idea of being guided by your ancestors and kind of bringing forth the best practices of the past, of traditions, and but also feeling supported and loved and like a, a sense of belonging in the world. And all of that's gotten me thinking lately about what it means to be a good ancestor myself. Like what, you know, what can I do in my lifetime to to leave a good world for future generations? What does it mean to be a good ancestor? Do you have an answer to that question? <laughs> never. <laughs> I've never had an answer. <laughs> I, I, oh my gosh, such a big question, but I think it's one of those, it's not rhetorical, but it's almost like a, a life question, you mm -hmm. know? So it's only fair that you should answer this question too. What's your favorite moment <laughs> from the process? I shouldn't have asked you. <laughs> right. Um, my favorite moment of this process, and I would say the reason why I wanted to be a part of it to begin with, really in its essence, is to learn. Like I learned so much about so many different things in all of these interviews from Juhi's like algal algae wall panels like I didn't know that <laughs> I know. that was a thing to kind of learning about these stark realities like how the Anacostia freeway was built during the same time as the Berlin Wall like there are these these physical built examples of disservices and injustices to communities that exist that like I myself growing up in a suburb of New Jersey never really had to think about mm -hmm. and so it's been an eye-opening process and I think I've been I'm appreciative of kind of opening my eyes and seeing what other people have had to endure yeah yeah and I mean it's it's just it's affirming to see how architecture can be like bent and manipulated in all these different ways to answer all of these different questions or even just phrase all these different questions yeah, to bring the awareness. I know I know more than one of our guests was thinking of their project as something to raise awareness of an issue, um, mm -hmm. an injustice, uh, a historical wrong, an erasure. So Leah was talking about the scourge of vacant lots and also homelessness. And the idea that, you know, the built environment industry has been weaponized against certain people mm -hmm. but also is a source potentially of great healing and repair yeah it's a reminder that architecture means a lot of different things for a lot of different people and they're not always great things but if we put our minds to it we can kind of reframe and, and rearrange what architecture does for people and I, I think also I don't want to forget about all the technological like I love kind of the intersections between science and technology and architecture and thinking about Christian's project with <laughs> yeah. like actually making use of these 3D printed homes in kind of a realistic way. Yeah, or bringing forth the best traditions from the past, like what Jasmine was doing with her permaculture agrarian landscape. Mm. Oh yeah, like merging. Uh, most of these projects merge something from the past with 
new technological advancements from the future yeah if we've learned anything it's like the response to maybe the way to build hope isn't just to say screw you old people you have no idea what you're doing but tease <laughs> out the good stuff get out know? the way <laughs> get out the way <laughs> yeah yeah it's true and ava using cutting edge like prefabrication techniques mm -hmm. um yeah now we're now we're not holding ourselves to the one favorite moment <laughs> we're sort of starting to bring in all these ones because you're absolutely right that you know maybe we can 3d print in remote locations mm -hmm. yeah i mean if i had to boil down my answer to one singular sentence it would be that my favorite moment is just like this is such a cop-out answer but to be able to sit down and have these conversations is a total luxury <laughs> absolutely We took an impromptu poll of the town hall participants. We asked them, do you see yourself as part of a movement? And if so, how would you define it? And how do you think it's going? You know, I have not a whole lot of firm experience, but I've worked with developers and contractors, and those guys are not at all in tune with any of thing that we're talking about, right? Um, they're concerned about babysitting their subcontractors and making sure that their permits go through, you know? And so... In one way, yeah, I mean, I see myself in a movement, I guess, right? And I think that gets exasperated once I kind of step outside of the bubble of, you know, academia and go into the world and understand, oh, I could be that advocate and be that guy in the room that goes, hey, um, let's try to do this another way and, and try to get other people outside of school to see differently, I think. And that, I think, might be the more, instead of just talking amongst ourselves about how good we all are, right? It's figuring out, <laughs> figuring out how we can convince other people who might not be so keen to it and speak their language. And I, I think that's where, you know, different experiences can be pretty valued in talking different languages and whatnot. So, I know one of the things that was mentioned earlier was just, um, how everybody brings a unique perspective. And I think as far as being part of the movement, I think I've, over the years of being in school, I've started to learn to fully embrace myself and voice my opinions. As someone who's gay and black, those are two very marginalized groups. So that kind of, a lot of my opinions, I start to like kind of ease back from and not try to voice those as much. But like I say, over the years, I feel like that's, actually I could view that as a positive thing that is coming from a unique perspective. And I think just learning to, even those who, have some type of push back just to still like get your voice out there and slowly things will change for the few, uh, like later generations I guess you could say. I mean I, I said it earlier in the podcast uh, yeah I didn't I didn't realize everybody else was like yeah I'm moving I'm not raining on anybody's parade yeah. I'm like wow maybe I was and I just didn't know but I, I think I felt uh, movement to be a label that for me is loaded with respect and like honor and memories of my grandparents who got like milkshakes dumped on them sitting at a lunch counter and stuff that I don't really I guess identify with it because I'm like well I'm fine I'm working in a firm I'm making money like <laughs> I'm privileged <laughs> I'm sitting here I went to school I guess I mean, we might be part of a movement for but for me the the label is steeped in something that is very much earned through trials and hardship that I don't think I 
very much experienced. I don't think I have a surefire answer as to whether I am a part of a movement or not. One of my mentors from a long time ago, uh, probably four years back, said this to me that, you know, with architecture, every project is designed with different intents. And I think that philosophy also sort of identifies with me in terms of social justice, environmental justice as well. My views and perspectives on to how I sort of design things um, to sort of fit someone else's standards in terms of the community will always vary per project in my opinion. And that's why for me personally, I never really set myself as to, oh, I'm completely for this movement. Because in the near future, who knows, perhaps that next stakeholder or that next client that I meet with, you know, to try and envision their dreams and their sort of goals for the project will be completely different from something that I did in the past. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's a good enough answer. I mean, I, I think I think for me, I'm sort of more freeform where sometimes I am sort of supportive of whatever the, the client's vision is in terms of, you know, their cultural practice. Um, and then there are some instances, sort of what like Austin was saying, where I'm just working with a developer and they want to just maximize their FAR. That's the only thing uh, that sort of matters to them. But for me personally, as a designer and as an architect, I think it's my responsibility to make these visions come true. And the beauty of design is finding that challenge and using that challenge as a way for you to create solutions that solve problems in the future. I guess where I stand on this spectrum of movement or non-movement, I mean, personally, I kind of support this idea of a movement and the fact that sustainability and social justice has become just a core part of the curriculum here at the university. But at the same time, this idea that as designers we're supposed to I don't know, act as representatives for the people we're designing for, like sometimes they just might not share those same values. And I guess that's kind of the scary part about going into the real world is that Maybe you have a stakeholder who just decides they want to focus on the cost and not the impact, which, I mean, you know, ideal world, it won't be that, but, and I, I mean, it's, it's changing, definitely, but it's just that kind of balance between idealism and what is happening in the world right now. Yeah, our business models at the moment make it difficult to push back when we have clients that maybe their bottom lines do not align with our values. And I think that's a really hard thing to change. Um, but I think it takes a collective profession cultural shift to make that happen. You know, can you imagine if one day all the firms said, we're not going to work for you because Clearly, you're not aligned with our values as a profession. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. But you know, like you know, like can you imagine though if it did? Like you know, that would really shake things up. Um, that's probably why it, things haven't it changed. It that, did that building that's like a dormitory, but it has no oh windows. Oh my god! Yeah. It's just that's a disgusting the one bunker. in Cal yeah, California. Yes, all the firms were like, no. Why would we do that? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's a great example. Yeah, so it happens. I would say that was a movement. Yes. Some lines that are just too far. <laughs>
I'm only looking for somewhere that has the same values as me because they know they have choice. And so then I, I think that the firms should recognize everyone that we want is looking for this in a firm. And like, that's what people care about. That's what the, the new talent cares about. Um, and the firms already, like in terms of sustainability alone, there's plenty of major influential firms that they know that they are influential. It should be their responsibility to model the best, most sustainable practices for everyone else. And I think that should be the same for social justice. Um, and so I think it, there's responsibility on the education side, but also from the, the professional side. I'm really heartened by new models of practice that you're starting to see, even in this area, people that have been involved with this school, who, you know, there's an architect who has a partner who is a developer and they do their own projects. They decide what the projects are. And really all a developer is, is somebody who has connections to funding and money. I mean, I'm oversimplifying, obviously developers are, you know, it's a very complex business. Um, and my husband went from architecture to being a developer. So I'm kind of on the inside of seeing what he does all day. And it's certainly possible for an architect to be a developer, but it doesn't matter. The money is out there if you know how to get it. And, you know, it takes a lot of networking. But teaming up with somebody who you guys decide, you decide what the project is and what the values are and go out and do it um, in collaboration with communities, like, it is possible. Um, so I think there's a lot more architects that are starting to work that way, too. One of the things about the University of Maryland School of Architecture, Planning, Preservation, and Real Estate Development is our interdisciplinary nature. Perhaps there's an opportunity for each one of our individualized um, specialties to communicate and learn the language, as some of the audience members have talked about, that can be used out in the larger marketplace while we're selling the idea of environmental justice um, and activism, we are also being cognizant of the bottom line and that there is people first, planet, and then profit. Out to the audience, what are your thoughts about coming out of this school that has an interdisciplinary focus and how can we better prepare you to address the challenges, both sides of the equation? Yeah, I've been trying to push for more mixing between the the degrees here, any chance that I get to make my voice heard this past year. Um, the planning students, just, I mean, I'm a planning and architecture student right now, so that's all I can speak to, but the planning students are interested in architecture, but they do not have that many opportunities to learn it. There are not many architecture courses that are made available to them, and they just they don't have as much knowledge about what the courses architects even take are. So they see Urban Design Studio on our curriculum and they say, oh, can we take that? But they don't know what that means or what skills are expected of the students in that class, but they have an idea of what they want to learn from it. And they know what skills they don't have that they would like to develop through that. And then I think there is a necessity in architecture students to have more opportunities to learn about the history and theory from planning that leads a lot of the planning students to come out of this school with such strong values compared to some architecture students. 
Like you don't have to necessarily have super strong environmental or social values to get through the school of architecture, um, but you need to be able to express that to get through the planning program. And I think that there should be be just more opportunities to take each other's classes and give feedback to each other's work, maybe help each other on projects. Um, the interdisciplinary competitions, the HUD competitions are the best place for that, I think, but it should be more present in the experiences of students. As we mentioned in part one, Maryland participates each year in the interdisciplinary competition sponsored by HUD. Another similar challenge is sponsored by the Urban Land Institute, called the ULI Heinz Competition. Our teams often make the final four, and we actually won it in 2015 for the second year in a row. Yeah, I would agree. Um, the HUD and ULI are like the most amazing opportunity to see like what the other disciplines do. Um, and even the real estate development student that worked with us, Lex Davis, he loved it. He was like, oh my gosh, I finally get to see the other side of it. Now I know why you guys make the decisions you do. I think that also gives him a sort of empathy going into his field. And if we could have studios that did that instead of just these competitions that you have to try out for or whatever, um, integrating the studios, but also some of the electives that we're required to take for our architecture degrees are open to the undergrads, where I feel like that's where we could integrate the other disciplines. I would personally love to take a real estate development or community planning course, but it's, I mean, my, our schedules are so tight, we don't even really have the opportunity. The ULI Heinz competition turned out to be the most rewarding studio I took in grad school. Usually you do a studio and there's like some kind of regret that it didn't turn out the way that you wanted to just because you're doing so much and so little time. But I didn't really have that working on the ULI project with a team of other students. Our podcast team member, Maisha, Leah, who spoke at the town hall, Miguel, and real estate developer, Lex, mentored by Christian Clary and Georgian Matthews. It just felt the most real and I learned the most during a class that only lasted for two weeks. Yeah, back in um, my undergraduate time, for our senior project, our design was like a both landscape and architecture kind of challenge. And we actually had kind of a charrette organized by AIS and I think the landscape version of AIS. But we had a charrette with the landscape architecture students and architecture students where we combined and basically swapped projects and basically just like had a whole night of trading stories and designing each other's projects in a way and just seeing how the landscape students would target our landscape and how we as architecture students would work with their project and I think it was like a really great experience and just getting to know both a, a group of students who are on the other side of campus because they're so far away and get the chance to learn from people who study landscape all the time. Hmm, that's awesome. I think that's something I've been grappling with a lot in practice is how separate all of the design consultants are. Sometimes your interior design group is hired by the owner and they just do their thing in your building and you might hate it 
and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter. That's just what you're going to get. Um, and sometimes it doesn't really mesh. I think it's really helpful to study amongst your future colleagues that are not necessarily architects because it kind of breaks down some of that feeling that we're like adversaries, right? Like there's all the like, oh, the contractor is always going to get you and, you know, <laughs> when the building starts going up or the owner is just trying to whatever. Um, and, and I think that comes from a place of not really understanding like where we're all coming from because we're not learning what they're learning. Um, so yeah, I, I wish we got a little bit more of that in school. Like not, not just design, but like engineering, construction would be nice if we were able to collaborate in some way. I mean, cause I, one of my best friends, she's a MEP engineer. And so like, it's funny because when I used to design things, I would show it to her. She's like, how are you going to put, <laughs> how is this going to work? <laughs> I'm like, just trust me, it'll, we'll figure it out. <laughs> but it's so cool to like have that perspective, like when you're designing something, because I think I, I also didn't expect architects to be so insular in our world. And then interiors is kind of insular and then, you know, everyone kind of has this preconceived notion of like what other people are doing, but we don't actually know. <laughs> like, I think I think it would be really cool if there was more crossover. So something you guys should push for, for sure. I have another quote. <laughs> you know me, I always have a quote. Um, Rebecca Solnit is one of my favorite journalists working right now. Um, and I mean, she's far more than a journalist. She's an essayist and a memoirist and just a beautiful writer about um, the cultural moment that we're in now. Um, and she has a whole book called Hope in the Dark, which is an amazing study of what happens actually when people when communities are faced with disasters natural disasters and other types of disasters and how they spontaneously come together to help each other and create community in the moment and how it, even in the midst of tragedy and trauma they have these powerful experiences of connection and resilience and so here's a quote from that book your opponents would love you to believe that it's hopeless that you have no power, that there's no reason to act, that you can't win. Hope is a gift you don't have to surrender, a power you don't have to throw away. Whoa. <laughs> it's a superpower. Yeah. And so we ended the town hall with the same question that we ended a lot of the episodes by asking the people in attendance how are you building hope? And of course, someone in the audience wisecracked, that assumes that we are hopeful. <laughs> and everybody laughed because it was the laughter of knowing, yeah, we're not always hopeful. <laughs> like we're, pe we're human, we get it, there's a lot going on. But, but ultimately we're hopeful. Yeah, like and I think we got some great 
answers. So how are you building hope? So my last name um, means hopeful in um, Persian. And so I've had a, I've had a lot of baggage with <laughs> being hopeful, right? It's, it's a big thing when that's your family name. And I'm not necessarily always a hopeful person. I think that sometimes being hopeful can feel too idealistic. But I, I think that hopefulness and, and building hope can come from much smaller visions, too. I build hope by oh, okay. representing, which is something I have struggled with because I grew up in an area and now I work in a field where there aren't a lot of people that really look like me or have similar experiences exactly. But when I go out recently to site visits and places where I talk to people and they light up and they ask, are you an architect? Like, I'm technically not, but <laughs> I am a designer and they just go off and they're very happy to see somebody that looks like them or maybe they feel they can relate more to. It gives me joy <laughs> in a way that I didn't really realize the impact a person could make. <laughs> I'm Danielle, and I'm building hope by staying involved and trying to make sure that I'm making decisions that match my values. I'm Leah, and I'm building hope by remaining optimistic and inspiring other people to be optimistic as well, starting with the little whys, questioning the norms. Hi, I'm Liam, and I am building back hope by daring to dream together. I'm Austin and I'm building hope by uh, giving it a shot and trying to get it done. These are all like ready to fit on a t-shirt. <laughs> I'm Britt and I'm building hope by embracing sustainability at all scales. I'm Adrian and I'm building hope by trying to learn every day something new. My name is Vincenza and I'm building hope by well, right now I'm building hope by being in school and learning as much as I can about sustainability so that I can take that into the real world. That might change once I graduate. <laughs> in four months. I'm Julie and I'm building hope by making this podcast. Okay. I'm Hannah and I'm building hope by learning about different social justice movements and also taking part of them. So I'm Maisha Islam, um, and I'm building hope by being patient and like just absorbing everything. I mean, that's what grad school has been for me a lot, just like absorbing as much as I can while I'm still in my little bubble that we talked about a while ago. Um, so yeah, a lot of absorbing. <laughs> Um, I'm Georgianne, and I'm building hope by working with the next generation of students, hopefully to help them push boundaries and come up with solutions that work for all of us. I'm Gabriella, and I'm building hope by being present. I'm building hope by being here and talking with you guys, like, honestly, I think we shouldn't underestimate like how powerful just having conversations with each other can be because ideas can spread and that's how change happens. So if this could be the spark, I think that's a great thing. Thank you for joining us for this final episode of Building Hope. 
Season 1, Patience in an Emergency. Before we close, I just want to personally thank everyone who worked on the podcast. That's Gabriella, Maisha, Hannah, and Vincenza. And all the helpers, over two dozen people who will be listed on the website. And But I especially want to thank Brian Kelly, Don Jordan, Georgian Matthews, and my other colleagues at the Architecture School for their support and encouragement. And I want to wish you well, Vincenza, oh. as you finish your thesis project for your presentation and to thank you for everything. And I literally could not have done this without you. Well, that's funny because you... You say VP of any thanks, and I would say. <laughs> in the script, <laughs> yeah, it says. Yeah, in the script that I'm reading. And it's, if I had any thanks, it would be to you because you have the vision and you've wrangled everyone together and you are just amazing. Like, none of this would be possible without you. So thanks, Julie, really. I think I speak on behalf of everyone who's worked on the podcast and who has been a part of it. It's been so much fun. Yeah. Um. So we'll just do closing stuff. Yeah. Um, you can find images. Oh, wait, you got to okay. say Building Hope Is because oh. that's when they have all our names. Okay. Building Hope Is. Julie Gabrielli, director. Vincenzo Perla, research assistant. Maisha Islam, graphic designer. Rona Cobell, editor. Raymar Toizone, music. Hannah Zozobrado, assistant producer and social media head. Gabriella Feinberg, technical director and producer. You can find images of these wonderful projects on our YouTube channel at Building Hope Pod. Visit our website, buildinghopepodcast.com, for show notes, transcripts, guest bios, and curriculum materials. We're also on Instagram at Building Hope Pod. And on Substack at Building Hope. Please share, rate, and review Building Hope on your favorite podcast app to help others find us too. This project is supported by a Faculty Student Research Award from the Graduate School, University of Maryland, as well as grants from the University's Sustainability Fund and the School of Architecture, Planning, and Preservation. We did it! <laughs> <laughs> We're done.